be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it shines and gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Father, we praise you and thank you for these words. Help us to live them out. In the name of Christ, amen. Good morning. It's good to see all of you, and it's nice to be in a warm room, isn't it? Hey, uh, have you ever been frustrated by false advertising? Have you ever received like a Facebook post on your on your Facebook wall that says something like, "Hey, if you like and share this ad, you'll get a hundred dollar gift certificate," and like that never happens, right? Or maybe you hear the the promise that if you use this aerosol, it's going to kill all the germs in your house. Or you know the whole thought that if you you, you know if you order this product on TV, you know, you're going to get it for free, but then when you go to order the product, you realize it's going to cost you fifty dollars to ship this eight ounce whatever it is. Right? It's just false advertising. It's confusing. It's frustrating. You know, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, were promoting a false understanding of how to ensure that a person would be blessed by God. Jesus comes to set the record straight, and he does it in this message that Judy just read. Like, this whole message that next over the next three chapters that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Well, this first part of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. And he really sets it straight in terms of what it looks like to be blessed by God. Now, the Beatitudes, when he shares them, they're like a, a splash of cold water to the Pharisees, right? For the face of those who are uh, self-satisfied and they're full of themselves. Again, the Pharisees are kind of like that. They were wealthy, successful, powerful. They were very religious, And they thought that God would surely reward them uh, for being such good people. Their righteousness, however, was only skin deep. It was a show. It was a fake. They looked good on the outside to other people, but in God's eyes, they were as rotten to the core as anyone else. And if we are like the Pharisees, and to some extent we, we are at times in our lives, then we better pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. God wants us to empty ourselves of all the things that we have prided ourselves on. And he wants us to take off those religious masks uh, and, and the fake smiles. And he simply wants us to be ourselves in front of him, warts and all. And he knows our true spiritual condition much better than we do. And he knows the secret, hidden sins of our hearts and our minds. He knows what we do when nobody else is watching. None of this is any surprise to him. He just wants us to acknowledge our pitiful condition before him, that our own righteousness doesn't have what it takes to make the cut in the kingdom of God. However, like a a splash of cold water in in the Pharisee's face, the Beatitudes are like a cool drink of water for those who have a bad taste in their mouths from all the wicked and the evil ways of the world. The people who are longing for something better, for something that brings true fulfillment and refreshment and satisfaction instead of leaving us dry and empty. 
And Jesus takes the, the he takes what the world calls, calls blessed and he turns it completely upside down. And in the process, he gives special honor to those of us who are despised and hated by the world and shows us all where true joy in life can really come from. Let's look at these upside-down values that Jesus speaks of in the Beatitudes, uh, by which Jesus calls us blessed. So Jesus begins with these words, blessed are, and these are the first words that mark Jesus as the giver. The word blessed shows that God has acted or will act on man's favor. In Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2 in the Old Testament, God tells us, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, in whose spirit there is no deceit. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 33, verse 29, God says again, He says, Blessed are you, O Israel, Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? Now, in Matthew's Gospel, the word blessed gets used a lot. It's always linked to God's action in Jesus himself. So in Matthew 11, 6, Jesus says, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on on my account. In Matthew 16, 17, he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So Jesus' Beatitudes uh, declare what he is and what he gives. And so in, in pronouncing these blessings, he's announcing that he's the Messiah, and Jesus then identifies who are blessed in the kingdom of God. And he goes and he lists these things out. He says, the blessed ones are the poor in spirit, people who are helpless, People who recognize their spiritual poverty, that they're spiritually bankrupt before a holy and a just God. And look to God to meet every need in their life. He says, blessed are those who mourn. People who are heartbroken. And although although we know that God can and will um, comfort those who are heartbroken, but the blessed are those who mourn refers to having and being brokenhearted for the sin that we've committed against God. Those who realize their loss because of their sin and mourn over it and look to God for comfort. And then he says, blessed are the meek. The kingdom of God does not, like the Pharisees thought, belong to the self-sufficient, to those who attempt to establish their own little kingdom, but to people who are powerless, who look to God for strength because they have none. And then the fourth one, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. People who are empty and look to God for purpose and for life in the satisfaction. And so Jesus also names the blessings that they're going to receive. The next four that he names are the ones that we're going to receive, those who he calls blessed. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. They belong in the kingdom of heaven. And really, you know, we're all helpless before God. We're born into the world as spiritual corpses. We're spiritually blind We're spiritually deaf. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature's objects of wrath. He's saying the kingdom of of God belongs then to all people, 
as long as we first realize our condition before God is that of a, of a, a spiritual beggar. We have nothing to offer. We come to God with nothing in our hands. The only thing that we can offer to God is our sins. But through Jesus, he gives us everything that we need. He then goes on and says, the blessed are those who are going to mourn, that they will be comforted. It's a simple myth that Christians aren't supposed to be sad at any time. We mourn, we mourn because we see the sin in the world. We mourn even more so because we see and know the sin in ourselves and the pain that it causes God and how it, it must really hurt God. And the arrival of the kingdom of heaven in Jesus' ministry brings the first taste of God's comforting blessing. Jesus has come to save his people from their sins. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah who says, Comfort, comfort my people. Jesus is our comfort because he heals our sinful disease. Then he goes on, he says, Blessed are those who are meek. They will inherit the earth. Now, meekness, we need to understand, is not weakness. It's power under control. It's a gentle strength. A meek person is controlled, not undisciplined. A meek person is humble, not prideful. Jesus was meek, but he certainly wasn't weak, was he? No. In fact, he was not afraid to confront the Pharisees when they, were not, when they would misrepresent God. He wasn't afraid to rebuke his own disciples for their self-centeredness. He was strong enough, in fact, to face the most torturous death possible as he endured the cross. Jesus was meek, but he wasn't weak. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be filled. You know, hungering and thirsting for righteousness means desiring more than anything the things of God. Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you know, today many people are rich in many things, but poor in soul. They have money in the bank, but they're bankrupt spiritually before God. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, belongs to those who truly understand and realize that the true satisfaction and contentment in life only comes from God. So these first four Beatitudes are kind of like a unit unto themselves. They're all referring to the same kind of person. They're all inferring the gift that is going to be given to this type of person. And Jesus is giving to those who have nothing and need everything. Jesus is giving them what he knows will truly be the answer for their needs, the true riches of the kingdom, the comfort that only he can give, the earth itself, God's, even God's righteousness. Now, the last four Beatitudes are also a unit. They're the rewards to look forward to, the final judgment, the new creation that God is making. And they're promised to those who are in Christ and who have already tasted the flavor of life in the kingdom that's coming. And they're demonstrating it, right, in their own lives in the present by what they do. He goes on, he says, blessed are the merciful. It's those people who've experienced God's kindness and mercy in their own lives, and they now want to show that compassion to others. He says to those that mercy is going to be shown. And Jesus is teaching us that the Pharisees' demand for rigid righteousness without mercy is in opposition to the good news of God's entering kingdom. And Jesus teaches frequently about how we're to forgive others, right? To respond to others' needs and failures. In fact, in the Lord's Prayer, he clearly states that we have to forgive others if we want to experience God's forgiveness in our own lives. 
And so how will we forgive others, you know? And how will we experience God's forgiveness if we don't forgive others? You know, and so this is, I think, where the, the real rubber meets the road, so to speak. It's easy, right, to love the lovable. But what about the people who offend us? What about the people who, like in sin, harm us or uh, frustrate us? Can we show mercy to the person who sinned and wronged us? Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. He then goes on and says, Blessed are the pure in heart, those whom God has cleansed from sin, and, and they now want to live according to God's word. And he tells us they will see God. Jesus declares here that a pure heart is what produces external changes, but not vice versa, right? This is a rebuke directly to the Pharisees who've placed so much emphasis on an external righteousness, right, that then, like the Pharisees believe, would prove that you have a clean heart. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. It, It happens from the inside out. It's a work of the Holy Spirit when the Spirit transforms our inner being. And Jesus confirms it's only by that change of heart, by the Holy Spirit, that produces external transformation. And I'm reminded of David's prayer when he's caught in sin, where he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Now the reward for those who are pure in heart is they will see God. And think about it. Jesus' pronouncement to the disciples and those listening to this sermon, it was realized in the moment that he spoke it, right? Jesus is Emmanuel, God in flesh. And not only did he say it, but now they see Jesus. They see God in Jesus, right? And Jesus is Emmanuel. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those of us who are pure in heart, and we're going to experience the unthinkable. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to see God in Jesus. And he goes on, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, those whom God has reconciled, to himself, And now, because they've experienced the forgiveness and reconciliation that God offers, they desire that for others. And they're going out and they're offering, right, the peace that God has given. He says, to those people, they will be called children of God. The theme of peace permeates throughout Scripture. It indicates completeness and wholeness in every area of our life, including our relationship with God, but also with our neighbors, and even with other nations. So how can we be peacemakers? By bringing the message of reconciliation that Christ has provided the way for all to be reconciled to God, right? And not only to God, but also to each other. And so Jesus is the supreme peacemaker, right? He has come to bring peace and offer peace between God and us. And those who respond to Jesus' invitation will receive the ultimate reward, to be called the children of God. And then he finally says, Blessed are the persecuted, those who unjustly suffer, are mistreated, who face rejection for the sake of the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, Theirs is the kingdom. It's not just the kingdom in the future. It's the kingdom promised now to those who are persecuted. Jesus is preparing his disciples that since he's going to experience rejection, and persecution, his disciples should expect the same. And we're likely not going to experience what the disciples did in terms of persecution, but we might be canceled, or we might lose some friends, or we might have family that discourage us because they don't understand our faith. 
no matter what the level of difficulty is uh, in our faith, we face uh, for faithfully following Jesus. Jesus offers us the hope that no matter how hard the circumstances, we are truly heirs of the kingdom. And in this, we can really rejoice. I think when we look at this, though, we've got to be careful with these Beatitudes. Jesus is not giving us some type of entrance requirements for heaven, right? This is not some kind of spiritual checklist that helps us get to heaven. No, it's not some kind of spiritual ACT test. Instead, he's talking about the nature of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that's radically different from any other kingdom in the world. The people wanted, they still want a Messiah, uh, a hero or a savior who's going to come in all of the, the pomp and the glory. And we admire people who are better and faster and smarter and richer than we are. And we, we try to be like them, right? But Jesus was not what we would have expected. Instead, he was everything we needed. Salvation, you see, is not going to be from trying to attain an impossible standard of perfection. Our deliverance could only take place because of Jesus was willing to come and to die for us, to be like us and to experience firsthand what it means to suffer, even to the extent of suffering the pains of hell as he's nailed to the cross. So therefore, if the, if the Beatitudes are like a cup of refreshing water, For us, it's because they reflect so well the meaning of the cross. Jesus was rich, right, with all the resources of being God in heaven. But he became poor for us. Jesus was strong, but he became vulnerable for us. Jesus was worthy of all honor, but he subjected himself to ridicule and shame for us. He was the source of every blessing, but he endured the harshest curse For us, Paul says in Galatians 3, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung from a tree. So on the cross, Jesus showed us God's mercy. God placed his punishment we deserve squarely on the shoulders of his beloved son. And on the cross, God made atonement for our sins, purifying us from them by innocent blood which Jesus shed. So on the cross, God offered peace for us, forgiving our sins and reconciling us to himself, even though we were his enemies. Now, if I'm going to do something foolish, chances are I I usually do it for my children, especially when they were young, like really young. I would do some really crazy things to try to get them to smile or laugh, and, and that often would put me sometimes in some embarrassing situations. But, you know, I think today we, we learn that God is something like that. That he's gladly going to become foolish, at least in our eyes, for the sake of his son. Let me explain. It may seem like foolishness for us, for Jesus to call the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, and the hungry blessed. The merciful, the peacemakers, the pure in heart, the persecuted rarely make the, the evening news. But if God wants, us, wants to call those people blessed, who are we to question him? After all, it's equally foolish to think, uh, to call sinners like you and me saints and holy ones. But thank God, that's exactly what God does for us, for, for the sake of his son. Now, if that's the kind of foolishness that God indulges in, well, that's just fine with me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it tells us, For the measure of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
God chose the foolish things in the world uh, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So Jesus' suffering on the cross enables God to look at us differently. And Jesus' suffering on the cross enables us to look at ourselves differently. We can look at ourselves cross-eyed, so to speak. Are we spiritually poor? Well, in Christ, we have the kingdom. Are we mourners? In Christ, we have comfort. Are we hungry and thirsty for God? In Christ, we have righteousness. Are we meek? In Christ, we inherit the earth, right? We see, how the, we see all of this now through faith, but one day we're going to see it with our eyes in the kingdom of heaven. So what's the takeaway of all this teaching from Jesus about uh, the blessings of those who are in the kingdom of God? Well, Jesus, again, he clearly communicates that God's kingdom belonged to those who see themselves as having no spiritual resources rather than like the Pharisees who think, you know, you've got to perform all these, these duties or perform all these religious tasks. Jesus is saying, no, no, that's completely wrong. It's false advertising. And he does it by, by giving us two piercing metaphors. He declares how we're going to impact the world with the kingdom life we possess. He tells us that we are called to go as salt and as light. And, he, and, you know, salt back then in the ancient world was a tremendous resource. It was used as sort of a substitute for uh, currency. If you didn't have gold or silver coins, you could pay for your item with salt. It was so valuable. And there were a lot of different uses for salt in the ancient, ancient world. Before refrigeration, right, you know, it was a primary means of preserving meat. So they would rub it into fish and so the fish wouldn't decay. And so, like salt, our lives in Christ can influence our culture from falling further into moral decay. And not only was salt like a preservative, but it also served as seasoning for food like it does today still. Some of the foods we eat would taste very different if they didn't have salt in them. You know, when I was a child, one of my favorite things was my mom would sometimes make homemade chocolate chip cookies. And I loved it, like when she would make homemade chocolate chip cookies until the one time she forgot to put salt into the mix. And those cookies tasted horrible. You know, salt can really make a huge difference in what the food tastes like. And so as Jesus' representatives, we provide a God-enhanced seasoning to this world by living out the kingdom values that Jesus talks about. Salt was also used in small quantities as a fertilizer in certain types of soil. So therefore, as Jesus' disciples... We're going to enhance the growth of God's work in this world. Even as I was writing this message this week, I was thinking, I wonder if the disciples realized that salt helps thaw snow and ice. You know, it's kind of practical, right? There's got to be a metaphor in there for that kind of use of salt. I couldn't quite think of it. I just was thinking, well, you know, you've got to get the salt out of the bag and onto the surface. And so maybe I thought about calling the city and saying, hey, if you try to get some salt out on the streets or out on the sidewalks. So salt again, right? Jesus is showing us as we experience a transformation in our lives by coming in contact with the kingdom of heaven, we're now different than others who are around us. And our presence is necessary as God's means for influencing the world for good. 
And Jesus' disciples are not only the salt of the earth, but also the light of the world. Jesus declared that he is the light of the world, who's come as a light into the world that enlightens all people, so that those who believe in him will no longer be in darkness. Have you ever been in complete darkness? I mean, it's kind of hard to get in complete darkness in the world that we live in, right? Like, if we go outside, it's hard, you know, because like, there's stars and moon. Uh, if we are inside, you know, whether a home or a building, there's just ambient light that are coming from so many sources. When I was a kid, we actually went on vacation, and one of the places we visited was Carlsbad Caverns. Have any of you ever been there? And they do this fascinating thing. They take you on this tour, this amazing caves. And uh, I just remember, I was, I was very pretty young, and I remember thinking, I'm standing on the path because they got these things called stalagmites and stalactites. You know, these they look like spears coming out of the ground and out of the ceiling of the cave. And, like, you get off the path, who knows what could happen, right? And they take you down to the, the middle of the deepest, biggest cavern. And you know what they do when you're down there? They turn the lights out, Right? And they only turn it out for like 30 seconds, but it feels like it's like 10 minutes. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, how would we get out of here if there weren't any lights? I wouldn't even know what to do, right? It also made me think, if I ever went splunking, I better have a serious flashlight, because like it'd be so dangerous, right, to try to do that without some kind of light. And that's the full understanding of Jesus as the light of the world. Without Christ, we're wandering around in complete, utter darkness and chaos and evil and death at every corner and dangerous, right? With no hope. No hope for salvation. But the light of the world has come and shown the light of salvation, the gift of the coming kingdom to all who believe and follow Jesus, the light of the world. And Jesus says to us now, you are the light of the world. You see, as we allow the Holy Spirit of Jesus to transform our lives into people of the kingdom of heaven, people who, re- who reflect these kingdom values that Jesus talks about, right? People who are completely humble before God. People who are truly sorry for our sins. People who exhibit a, a gentle strength. People who have a desire to know God above anything else. People who have received God's mercy, and now they want to offer that mercy to others who failed. People who are fully devoted to Jesus. People who offer God's peace to all. You think that's needed today? Absolutely. People who stand for what's right, even if it costs us. If we let Jesus' light shine through us in these ways, we will truly be the light of the world. Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful for these words, this amazing beginning of your sermon that really help us to fully understand what it means and what it's like to be in your kingdom, to set the record straight that it's not about our attempting to to perform, to earn your approval, as the Pharisees suggested. No, it's, it's about realizing that we are completely, fully spiritually bankrupt without you that we have nothing to offer in our own regard. And Jesus, we're so thankful that you not only came and you taught us, but then you, you were willing to sacrifice your life for us. And that in your sacrifice, that, that God counts your righteousness for our lives. And Jesus, we thank you that you promise us that we, as we have, have very little to offer, 
that when we are in you, that you give us all the resources that are necessary. In fact, you give us a calling to be your salt and your light in a world that is desperately in need of hope. So Jesus, we pray, help us to be faithful. Help us to pursue you and to realize that you're going to use us in spite of whatever shortcomings we have. You're going to use us to demonstrate you are the light of the world. And so we praise you, we give you thanks, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand for the benediction. And as you stand, just want to invite our prayer team to gather in the hallway. Do you